0: That little boy inside that forces me to hide. When the walls I'm breaking through make me separate from you, when all I wish to do is say that I love you, well, it's a kiss beyond the catcher. There is nothing. New.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 1776 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Van Lindbergh of The Ringer, not joined today as I usually am by Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs. Meg is traveling for Thanksgiving. I have an almost eight-week-old baby at home, so I am not traveling for Thanksgiving, and therefore I am with you today. Meg will be back tomorrow and we will be discussing the Wander Franco extension and the Kendall Graveman deal and the next four episodes of Stove League and who knows what else. But in Meg's absence, I will be doing two interviews with two authors of two pieces of recent writing about baseball that I quite enjoyed. Later in the episode, I will be bringing on Gerald Schiffman of Baseball Prospectus to discuss his research published on Tuesday about whether shadows on the field actually matter. You hear broadcasters talk about this every October as the shadows creep from behind the mound to home plate. Gerald did the research. This is actually his second look at the subject. And he came up with an interesting answer, so he'll be here a little later on. Most of the episode, though, will be spent in conversation with my first guest, Katie Casey, who is the author of a book called Unwritten Rules, published last month. It is a baseball romance novel. And it is about catchers and catcher framing. A bullpen framing session is sort of the meat cute here, so obviously I loved it. It's got a great story and a great relationship at the center of it, and it's a great book about baseball. And if you have any curiosity about romance novels in general and how they intersect with sports, this will be a great introduction to that topic. So let's get going. Back in May, I got a message from my guest today, Katie Casey, who was asking me for permission to use a a quote of mine from a Grantland article back in 2013 about pitch framing as an epigraph for her baseball romance novel called Unwritten Rules. And I was flattered. I'm a big epigraph guy, love using an epigraph, have never been used as an epigraph previously to my knowledge. So I was flattered. And after reading the book, I am even more honored to be associated with it in some small way because it is a great book. So Katie, thank you very much for using that quote. Thank you for writing the book. Congrats on writing the book. And as you know, I had hoped to talk to you in October before the book came out, but my daughter had other ideas. So I am happy to have you on today.
2: Yeah, thank you for inviting me on. Uh, first of all, like muzzles on uh, on, on your uh, new <laughs> arrival. Thank I you. I know that was, this must have been an, an exhausting couple of months. So <laughs> I, I really appreciate you having me on. So I DM'd you on Twitter because my publisher, Karina Press, which is a, a Harlequin imprint, Was like, yeah, you know, you can use this quote as an epigraph, but we're going to need you to permission it. Hmm. So I was like, let me let me let me ask a question that you probably have never been asked, (laughs) which is, can I use a quote (laughs) from an article on pitch framing Mm -hmm. as an epigraph to a I would say um, high heat MM Jewish baseball romance novel? That mm-hmm. <laughs> has, I would say, about ninety nine percent accurate ish baseball. Um, is yes. what I will say. Yes. Some liberties were taken with the timing of the trade <laughs> deadline. Is what is what I am going to say. Mm-hmm. But you know, I really appreciated you using the quote, <laughs> or letting me use the quote, uh, and I think it really actually sums up the the book pretty well.
1: Yeah. Would you care to to read the quote, or or I can? I don't know which would be better, but maybe that would set up our conversation sort of.
2: Sure. Um. Let me let me pull that up. Sure. So just for for context. Because I know I threw a lot of of adjectives at this, so "unwritten rules" is a romance novel, and we'll get into what that sort of means. Because I always like to be a little bit definitional about that, because um, I mm-hmm. think people have some some ideas of of what sort of is are or are not romance novels. It is a contemporary sports romance, so set in present day. There is actually historical sports romance
0: mm-hmm.
2: and paranormal sports romance, if you can believe it. I can. and it is about a catcher named uh zach glasser who is Mm -hmm. jewish because i am jewish i believe you are as well
1: half but yes half. okay (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: and it is about him being selected to go to the all-star classic game because i can't use trademarked (laughs) names and when he gets there he encounters a former Teammate, who mm-hmm. is also his ex boyfriend. Yes, and Eugenio Morales. Oh, thank you. And you're the, you're the first person I've talked to who's like, I know how that's pronounced,
1: which <laughs> I really
2: appreciate.
1: Well, it's it's baseball. There are a lot of Eugenios out there.
2: So what I discovered is there's only been two in MLB history. So uh, mm-hmm. Perez and Suarez. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so he encounters uh, Eugenio Morales, who is his ex boyfriend ex-boyfriend and ex-teammate and then the book kind of flashes back and forth um between the present day and about three years ago when they first met and when the team basically tells zach that uh who is, is a catcher he is more like a a to catcher um so really mm-hmm. good at framing really good at pitch calling not so much with the hitting mm-hmm. that he has to teach aohenio how to be a better framer Mm -hmm. So the quote, therefore, so and then framing kind of becomes a whole theme. So the quote is baseball is often described as a chess match between batter and pitcher, but it's more like a chess match between batter and pitcher, in which once in a while, the catcher grabs the board and moves someone's piece. Ben Lindbergh, The Art of Pitch Framing*, Grantland
1: 2013. (laughs) Well, now that we have quoted me, which is uh, how we wanted to start this, yeah, I I appreciate being asked for permission. You didn't necessarily have to ask. You could have quoted. It's a public article. It's out there, so I wouldn't have minded if you had, but I'm glad that you did ask so that I would be aware of the book, which potentially I might have missed otherwise, and (laughs) that would have deprived me of a great reading experience. And yes, once I learned about the premise of this novel I I couldn't believe it it sounded so up my alley because I am fascinated by catchers and by framing specifically and so the idea that framing could become the centerpiece of a romantic relationship and as I told you I maybe hadn't realized the full erotic potential <laughs> of catcher framing before I read this book you know it brings uh, catchers into close contact with each other you have to uh, perhaps hold someone's hand and teach them exactly what movements to make. And it's a very intimate activity, at least now I have learned. So (laughs) I want to know about the inspiration for this book. And I know that you have done various kinds of writing, but what led you to writing romance and that what led you to becoming a baseball fan and what led you to combining those things?
2: So first of all, thank you. I'm glad that you enjoyed the book. I always want to ask this whenever I'm doing kind of interview stuff. Was this the first romance novel you've ever read?
1: I suppose so. And as you said, I, I guess there are definitional questions there where how much romance makes something a romance novel. right? <laughs> there, there's romance in, in many no- novels, many, maybe most novels. But I suppose of, of this specific kind, yes, probably. And I don't read a, a ton of baseball fiction either, non-romance baseball fiction, but this was the best of both worlds, at least as far as I could tell.
2: Well, I, I definitely appreciate you saying that. That that really genuinely means a lot. I wanted to write the book, and I'll get into the, kind of the, the answer to your question, but I wanted to write the book uh, in part for serious baseball heads. Like, yeah. I wanted people who really knew the game well to be able to read it and say, you know, this kind of resonated, this feels baseball-y in mm-hmm. addition to feeling romancy. But to kind of backtrack, so... What defines a romance novel are are three things. So one, it has to have a central love story. So there's a lot of fiction, as you said, with strong romantic elements. But this, it sort of has to be such that if you removed the, the love story at the center of the novel, the kind of the book would fall apart. Um, and it, it needs to drive kind of all of the, the action in the book. The second thing is that it has to have a, uh, a, a happily ever after or what's called a happy for happy, happy for now. But basically, uh-huh. the main couple has to end up or however many people have to end up together and alive at the end of the book.
1: Ah, Interesting. OK,
2: so uh, Romeo and Juliet, not a romance, not Got genre it. romance. Uh Um, Nicholas Sparks, a lot of people are familiar with him. He writes love stories, Mm -hmm. but because people have a tendency to die, um, (laughs) it's actually not considered genre romance. Mm -hmm. The examples I kind of give that might be in sort of the more popular imagining is actually movies. So like, she's all that would be a Mm -hmm. genre romance. So like this sort of like spade of, of late nineties, like Meg Ryan-y rom-coms. Mm-hmm. would qualify because like central love story happily ever after um, characters alive got it the last kind of requirement is is kind of tricky to explain and it's that characters have to achieve whatever goals they set out to and that it has to end in an optimistic way for the character but that doesn't mean that they have to be like morally good mafia romance is kind of having mm-hmm. a have a good day. Um, I, I don't know how much uh <laughs> how we want to get on, on on this podcast. But monster romance is really uh-huh. uh, big right now. So when I said however many people, I was like, well, people are or other types of <laughs> sapient right. creatures. But you know, that's sort of a, a requirement. So unwritten rules is genre romance, central love story, happily ever after, so the characters are alive and together at the end, and sort of the big problem particular to the main characters has been solved in an optimistic way at the end, mm-hmm. and so like you know how do how do I get into into writing this well i read a, I read a whole lot of it, mm-hmm. and you know I think that people have this like vision probably of mass market paperbacks you know with like the the like the covers with like a couple embracing on them when they think about romance right. and that's fine that's a that's a valid kind of impression, but there's a reason that when you walk into like a library or a used bookstore, there's so many of them. And it's because romance readers will read two to 300 books a year.
1: Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I wanted to ask you for context just about the popularity of baseball romance novels, because I get the sense that they are quite popular and quite numerous. And I wondered, I suppose, do people come to them because they like baseball and they want to read romance stories set in a baseball world? Or is it completely the opposite? And how does baseball romance compared to other sports romance is it more or or less popular would you say
2: that's a tricky question to answer i would say it's a spectrum i think probably it's more romance readers who are interested in reading sports romance than baseball Mm -hmm. people who are into it but there's Mm -hmm. a pretty big spectrum the major popular sport right now for romance is actually hockey Hmm. yeah and there's a there's a variety of kind of reasons as to why that is like it's a sport that's fairly easy to explain in terms of the rules though I think there's probably not a there's a couple hockey romances that are written by like some very serious hockey people where I'm like, Oh, I finally understand hybrid icing. I've never, I don't think, I don't think any of the linesmen understand it either. But you know, there's some, there's some pretty serious ones. There's one that's uh, called goalie interference. That's actually like the equivalent of of my book in terms of like talking about, you know, instead of people learning how to frame pitches, it's like goalies learning like new sort of blocking techniques, Mm -hmm. but gets really pretty seriously into detail about it. But there's a lot That that are certainly, um, I would say, more accessible, maybe less baseball or less hockey focused, you know, and and I don't want to kind of to knock those in any way because I've read a lot of them (laughs) (laughs) um, and I've enjoyed a lot of them. Um, So it's just sort of a spectrum in in sort of who the audience is with uh, compassion and respect to, to Bailey, who does Foolish Baseball. Mm -hmm. whose stuff I adore, Mm -hmm. you know, he posted on Twitter, sort of like a screenshot of um, the top baseball books on Goodreads, and it's all romance novels.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And I was like, Yeah, I mean, that particular author probably sells between 100 and 500 books a day. Wow. Yeah. And so I was like, you know, that's sort of the the way the way that it kind of functions, the popularity, it's the largest sector of fiction like fiction books that get sold in in the u.s for sure um it's not a majority but it's a really healthy plurality Mm -hmm. so you know it's it's an industry. It's baseball is obviously a pretty big industry, but it's it's a more than billion dollar industry. And for books, that's kind of a, a big amount of money. Yes, it is. Publishing plays with a lot of money, but like baseball plays obviously with a little bit more than
1: that. Yes, clearly I am writing in the wrong genre, it seems. Yeah. But I wanted to ask about your own baseball background because you have contributed to Baseball Prospectus and Fangraphs slash The Hardball Times, etc. I mean, you are a, a hardcore, extremely online baseball fan and writer and <laughs> podcaster. So as I understand it, this was not a, a lifelong love for you necessarily. You, you came to it at a, a certain point and obviously fully embraced it and became an expert in it. So how did that happen for you?
2: Yeah, I think it's a spectrum of like, sometimes you just kind of trip and fall into things. Um, (laughs) And when I get into something, I just like, like, I really get into stuff. So I grew up in the, in the DC, I grew up in DC. And so in in the city and DC obviously did not have a baseball team until 2005. You know, they had it before, but I was born in the 80s. So, you know, Mm -hmm. there's that. So I mostly went to like some O's games growing up. For periodically rah rah Cal Ripken during his sort of streak of stuff which was cool and then I went to college in Pittsburgh and got to see the um the early 2000s Pirates which really inspired somebody yeah. to become a fan of Who very become cheap a big beer baseball fan. right at the ball. like I love the cheap beer I love the pierogies but the on-field products you know left some stuff to be desired Yes. So I moved back to, to DC kind of after college. Um, and then actually, uh, my sister is the world expert probably on the 2006 to 2011 Nationals. Uh-huh. Like for real, she once accosted ish slash fangirled uh, Willie Harris at a minor league baseball game in Montana. <laughs> she was like, I loved when you were a national. And he's like, I don't remember being a national. <laughs> <laughs> So like like I I wanna I wanna contextualize. She has a hat signed by Ryan Church.
1: Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Like, like I, this I is a... he was on my fantasy team at some point back when I was a fantasy player and and he he did good work for me. So I have fond memories of Ryan Church too. But don't own any Church merch as far as I know.
2: Yeah, I think it's a Zimmerman sh- like, or no, maybe it's not a hat. Maybe it's a shirt. I think it's a Zimmerman shirt. And she's like, "Well, I got at least one Ryan. It's fine,
0: <laughs> close enough, close, yeah.
2: close enough for government work." So she got into it. We used to, you know, go to games when they would play the Pirates, actually, um, because it was like a fair matchup, um, and it was like, "Well, they have like a chance of winning if we go to see them play spectacularly bad teams at like RFK, which is you know one of the worst stadiums in the world." Mm-hmm. And then obviously, as the team gradually got better, um, you know, it became just a, a more interesting on-field product. And so I kind of gr- gradually got more and more into it. And this is this is kind of embarrassing to admit to, like, you on this podcast. So I remember having a very clear thought in watching, like, Adam LaRoche. And I was like, huh, well, you know, he, it's OK, but like he gets on base really frequently. I wonder if there's like a, a way to sort of like talk about that from like a, a mathematical perspective in terms of a player value perspective. And like I remember having that and being like, oh, OBP. OK, like I got that. <laughs> and like yeah. that's that's embarrassing in how recent it was. But it, from there, I kind of sort of like got more and more increasingly into it. And now I spend a lot of time staring at Brooks baseball.
1: <laughs> right. And that is very much in the book. I mean, we joke sometimes on the podcast about baseball media. You know, if a, a book mentions baseball, we joke that it's a baseball book. Or if uh, you can see a poster of something related to baseball in the background <laughs> of a movie, then, oh, that's a baseball movie. But this is not that. <laughs> this is fully a baseball book and fully a romance novel. But this betrays your familiarity with baseball in many ways. I mean, advanced stats certainly are in here, but also just like many of the issues that are facing the contemporary sport. I mean, the conditions that minor leaguers face. I mean, so many of the things that we talk about on the podcast make some appearance in the book. And not that you're like writing the formula for WOBA or something in the middle of this romance (laughs) novel, but it's very clear that you're familiar with all of these things and, and these characters are introduced to these things to some extent extent and and are also cognizant of them. So I really was curious how you balance that as you were writing, because I imagine that maybe some baseball fans would be coming to it for the baseball more so than the romance and some romance fans would be coming to it for the romance more so than the baseball. And you don't want to turn either off entirely. So how did you and your editor and publisher decide the proper balance between depth and detail and really making this uh, a true to life baseball story without sort of distracting from the main narrative Mm -hmm. and, and the relationship between these two characters.
2: Yeah, so I think like as you said, there there is definitely a balance. The working title of the book was Pitch Framing and Other Lies. Um, my agent, who is wonderful, and she's a she's a sports person. She lives in near Atlanta, um, and so she's like excitedly emailing me at like midnight when they won the when they won the World Series. But you know, she was very like, look, you you need to make this accessible. You need to make it, you know, sort of like I would say actually specificity really helps with explanation. So like, I get pretty, I try to be very specific because, you know, one characters would think in that sort of specific way, like, if you do a job and you, you know it pretty intimately, you're going to think about it in very specific terms. But I also think it helps in terms of, of explanation and making stuff accessible. It's when stuff gets kind of vague that I think it, it actually becomes less accessible. I did trim a lot of baseball back <laughs> out of the book. I'm not going to lie. Uh, there was, I would say, somebody in a review, and it was a really nice review, said like, there's actually not a huge amount of like, gameplay, which is true. Yeah. There's a lot of baseball, but I think there's only like, Three or four, three or four baseball like game scenes. Right. And so I think that that's also the, the feeling of you want to sort of be in the world and in their you at- sort of the, the baseball is the atmosphere around them. Um, but it's not exactly like the same way that a sports movie would have a lot of gameplay scenes that sort of sort of culminated championship, mm-hmm. you know, and it, as you said, the other thing about the book is, you know, it's kind of called unwritten rules for a reason. I would say I brought a lot of, I love little B baseball a whole lot. Mm-hmm. I love the sport. I will watch it. I, you know, love that, that lead on is now available on MLB TV mm-hmm. and will sort of like, I will watch baseball reruns. Like it's, sort of that level of stuff. But I have a lot of and a lot of people have a lot of criticisms of the way that MLB, you know, sort of an organized baseball with a capital B runs. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted the book to to not ignore those things that you can have a romance, certainly that doesn't get sort of into the politics of, of baseball. But it felt to me that I couldn't write that authentically, given my sort of relationship to the sport. Mm-hmm. And so the the main character kind of goes through an arc where he loves baseball and then he falls out of love with it. And then he has to fall back in love with it as a sport. But not necessarily when we're ma- like he doesn't necessarily become uncritical of all the all the stuff that he sees mm-hmm. um, going on around him um, like treatment of um, minor league players um, I would say there's a, a healthy storyline about uh, his his best friend is a, a female coach who mm-hmm. um, wants to go play in the women's baseball world cup which has in the real world was was supposed to be in 2020 and now has been postponed to 2024 unfortunately you know she she's a and and sort of she talks pretty candidly and openly about sort of the the struggles of wanting to play baseball versus you know sort of being funneled more towards softball and and having very limited economic opportunities to play baseball and so i wanted to have that all kind of be in that conversation because you know it's for me hard to ignore those things mm mm-hmm. mhm and I think really kind of shape the way, hope, hopefully, ish that actual baseball players somewhat operate. Mm-hmm. That that you know, it's it's different. It's one thing to go out and play, but it's also another thing to sort of acknowledge the the political context in which in which the game operates. You know, and in terms of the balance, I, I, I don't want to underestimate. There's a lot of smooching in this book. It is a high heat <laughs> romance novel. <laughs> yes. um, my father read it, and I was like, please don't. <laughs> Please, you are a seventy-something-year-old man. I would prefer if you did not read this because I would like to have a conversation with you at some point without shrinking under a table, mm-hmm. you know. But it does. I think I. My hope is that it kind of balances the the love story with baseball with the love story between two people.
1: Yeah. And we talk all the time about non romance baseball media, whether it's TV shows or movies or books or what have you, where something sounds our alarm as. Baseball experts or self-professed Experts that something seems factually Off oh this isn't the way it works And sometimes that's intentional but Sometimes you get the sense that it's just not that They just didn't care about the accuracy and they Made some sort of mistake that really Never happened when I was reading unwritten <laughs> Rules I, I guess there are only A couple times where something deviates From the way baseball actually works And, and you mentioned that that's Done for story purposes really that the Timing of the trade deadline and I suppose Another thing that happens after the trade deadline when our two characters are playing for two different teams in the same city and uh often you have those teams playing in that same city at the same time which uh, is important for story purposes so that these characters can actually be together whereas in real life usually one of those teams is home and the other is on the road at any given time unless they are playing each other so that's an example i guess of something where i thought oh well in real life they they would probably not be in the same place at the same time right now but for story purposes of course you have to have them actually be together at at this point so <laughs> there are a couple cases i guess where you took some liberties but for for good reasons
2: yeah and i i sort of think um i don't know if you remember the tv show sliders at all yeah <laughs> this was yeah okay so at one point this is a show about like they slide into like alternative alternative universes and right. like you know the world is is either subtly or completely different from sort of our world um and so they slide into one universe where the golden gate bridge is blue
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and that's sort of my feeling about the baseball world i created like the golden gate bridge is blue there are some things that have to be intentionally done um i did actually look up so at one point i have the uh definitely not the yankees team (laughs) um so it's the new york union they play in the bronx they wear pinstripes it is not the yankees thank you mlb lawyers (laughs) and you know they're playing a saturday i think it was like supposed to be like a saturday game and i looked up like the times when they would play it and i was like yeah they don't usually play it this time on saturdays Mm -hmm. it for story reasons i have (laughs) to have it yep yep and that's sort of like yeah and and the the book has like a a three years ago and then present and there's no actual year number ascribed to it but I do mention like when the Supreme court decision about gay marriage was as being Mm -hmm. like the previous year. So it is actually pretty grounded in like a specific year. Mm -hmm. And during that time, there was obviously the trade deadline and the waiver trade deadline. And I'm like, what if we just like smushed them? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And what was the the thinking behind using fictional analogs of real life teams? So Zach, at various points in the story, he plays for the the faux Oakland Days and the faux Miami Marlins and the faux New York Yankees. And of course, they have different names and, and some details are changed, but they're recognizable. So I guess, A, how did you figure out? How close you could come without treading on any territory that could get you in trouble. And then B, what made you decide to model these on real life teams instead of just making up a a completely different baseball universe? I mean, did it help kind of ground readers who are familiar with baseball for you to have those nods and, and winks in there?
2: Yeah, I think that that's sort of that was sort of my thinking of I wanted to write for like, I know a lot of of obviously very serious baseball fans who are also like read romance novels. And so I wanted to sort of have little, you know, sort of, as you said, nods and winks kind of inside jokes inside baseball haha, jokes <laughs> for them. But also there's sort of a major component of the book in which like the stadiums in which they play, ha- like contribute to sort of like the the setting, you know, in particular in Oakland, there's a lot of sort of discussion of they play in the Elephants Coliseum, which is definitely not the Oakland (laughs) Coliseum. Mm -hmm.
1: It also has plumbing problems, but that's just a coincidence.
2: And possums, which, (laughs) you know, truth is a defense against all of that stuff. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I wanted that to be part of the setting and sort of contribute to it. In terms of the actual names, I sat down and did what I love most to do in life. I made a spreadsheet mm-hmm. with sort of the locations of where I wanted to have teams and then really tried to think about sort of the 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 names that would be a little inside baseball and a little fun for people who are into serious baseball, but not confusing for people who weren't. Mm-hmm. So... I came up with a lot of names. I have a friend who lives in Canada who named uh, the Toronto team. And I'll talk about what that is, because I think it's, it's terrific. But his like hidden talent party trick is he can come up with fake team names really well. <laughs> and so he helped a whole lot with a couple of them. But some of it was research, some of it was just sort of thinking analogously, the ones that I think are probably my favorites and aren't necessarily even named in the book um but i did like a whole instagram series about them um was the los angeles anaheim uh californians of anaheim california
0: (laughs) <laughs>
2: uh-huh. I was just like, yeah, that's that's what that's gonna that's what that's gonna be. Um, but so obviously, the the elephants is a mascot ish for Oakland. You have the Miami Swordfish. I think we can see where those going. Ayo Hanyu plays for the New York Gotham's, mm-hmm. which was the name of the Giants before the Giants were the Giants. Right. And if you look at the old Gotham's logo, it's actually the the N and the Y are the, are what the Mets adopted.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned the the two different timelines, sort of these uh, parallel settings where you have the first time that Zach and Eugenio get together when they're teammates and that doesn't end quite so happily and then there is a a time when their romance is rekindled and I guess it's not a spoiler because you have already explained the conventions of the romance genre to say that things work out a little bit better this time. So you were kind of telling these stories at the same time and, and going back and and going forward so tell us why you decided to structure the story that way
2: yeah so it is like it, it is told in two timelines it is told solely from zach's point of view mm-hmm. and is actually told in the third person present which are all controversial choices within r- romance as a genre um mm. so present tense is a little controversial single pov is a little bit controversial but with two timelines dual point of view is is gets complicated pretty quickly So the sort of trope that this is called is second chance romance. Um, It is sort of a major, like, if you say something is a second chance romance, people really understand what that means. As you said, it always ends with the main couple back together. You know, I liken it to like Columbo, you know, that he's going to solve the murder in an (laughs) interesting way. And you, you know, you know that that's how it's going to end, but the tension is sort of in how you get there. And so I wanted really, I think, to show for second chance romance, often it has characters who are sort of dragging their past in with them. Right. They have this baggage. They have all of this stuff that, that occurred for me. I always want to see what happened the first time
0: mm-hmm.
2: because I feel like when you have people who kind of are are dragging a whole lot of baggage with them to kind of have them come back together and then just allude to what happened the first time for me is not particularly emotionally satisfying.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: you want to sort of see what brought them together. You want to sort of see them happy But the tension comes knowing that they're going to break up and then get back together. So there's an author named Alyssa Cole, who has a novella as part of her sort of series about royalty that's done really well. And I'm going to pull up the actual name of the novella. I don't want to misspeak about it. Um, But what she does for a second chance romance, it was just like masterful. Um, So she has a dual timeline right? So you see them in past and you see them in the present getting back together. Um, but then it's one point of view for in the past and then the other person's point of view in the present. Um, awesome. And that to me was just like incredibly well done in terms of structure. Um, and anytime somebody does anything kind of interesting in terms of structure or in terms of kind of playing around with you know, sort of how how the book can work, knowing that you know how it's gonna end up, to me is mm-hmm. always just like really, really cool and interesting to read. Um, so that novella is called Once Ghosted, Twice Shy. Mm-hmm. And if you know you are into, if you are trying to get into romance and you need to know where to start, Alyssa Cole is a great is a great person to start with. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, she she writes these, like, tributes to New York City that I'm just like, can I just frame this? (laughs) But, like, there's just, like, sort of, because you have this end that is assured, you can be very playful with structure.
1: And... Not to give too much away, but basically the the conflict in the relationship comes from the fact that Eugenio is more open about his orientation. He has told some teammates he is more willing to share this with the world, whereas Zach is uh, extremely unwilling to let anyone into this secret that he is keeping. And he is worried about sharing it with his family. He is worried about sharing it with his team. He is worried about what that would mean for his baseball career. And so they are both bringing a a lot of baggage and history to this relationship. And of course, I'm I'm sure that you have brought some of your own personal history to the story Mm -hmm. in various ways. So, as a a queer person, as a Jewish person, can you say how much your own experience informed the story and, and the attitude of Zach?
2: Yeah, so Zach to kind of give his his fictional background, um he grew up in uh, a neighborhood right outside Baltimore called Pikesville, which is a um like super Jewish area right outside Baltimore. Um, And the reason that you have these sort of like Jewish areas in various neighborhoods, particularly the East Coast, actually has to do with like the history of housing covenants and things like that. I grew up in a in a very similar neighborhood in D.C. Mm -hmm. So really sort of that that feeling of growing up kind of in community like that is something that I definitely wanted to bring, though I did not grow up in Pikesville. Mm -hmm. His family, you know, is observant. He himself doesn't like keep kosher particularly. Um, mm-hmm. but he's observant in kind of other ways. Um, so he is Jewish. There's discussion of a ketubah, which is like a, it's a marriage contract but that's sort of i think like overselling it a little bit it it is a contract and people you know do still get them but it's it's sort of a declaration uh, like a, a a love declaration document is what i will mm-hmm. say written in Arabic so he sort of values that he's very like close to his family and like really you know cares about what they what they think about him and he cares about like pleasing his parents and making them proud. And I wanted to show in a lot of ways that a person who kind of has all of those forces on him and he, you know, he wants to be a successful baseball, you know, uh, definitely not MLB sort Mm -hmm. of professional baseball player who plays in the major leagues, but not MLB because it's trademarked, but he Mm -hmm. he sort of has these sort of twin sort of pressures on him. But I wanted to, to really show that like his parents, they're, they're not homophobic you know, they're, they're shown to be like accepting of, you know, his his best friend's married to, you know, she's married to a woman, but they have these sort of familial expectations and this sort of very heteronormative worldview of like, you're going to get married, you're going to have babies, you're going to live near us. And that's sort of how the world is going to be. And some of that's grounded in like his relationship with his mom in particular, and sort of some of the like, frankly, second generation immigrant pressure that he's facing as well. Um, And that's something that I have personal experience with. And so that's sort of the perspective I wanted to take. I think a lot of times in romance and in other books, you know, there's there's usually when a when a character is afraid to come out to their family, it's because the family is sort of homophobic and if they're religious, they are some flavor of generally Christian that's homophobic. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to show sort of a different a different perspective on that. It was really important that he like he has a good relationship with his family and his relationship with his family gets better throughout the book. And you know, it's not it's not spoilers, well it is, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> That like, I did not want to write a book in which a character becomes estranged from their family. Mm -hmm. That to me is something that's really hard to read. And I think for Jews, it's just a fundamentally different prospect. Mm -hmm. Like that would mean like being cut off from like an entire community of people and sort of just, I don't know, it feels different. And so I wanted to write a book about like having that tension between sort of those familial expectations that come from a really a really good place and a place of like love of wanting him to be happy with the fact that that baseball has a lot of structural homophobia.
1: Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask about that because I guess some people might read this and and urge Zach to to come out and be more open. And again, I guess this isn't quite set in the present day, but close enough that uh, some people reading this might feel Eohenio's frustration and say, Zach, come on, people will be accepting of this. But of course, you know, the NBA, NFL, NHL, recently high-level men's soccer have all had active players publicly come out. That still hasn't happened in MLB. And I wonder whether you think there is anything about MLB or about baseball in general that has erected, I guess, higher barriers to this or that has made it less welcoming, less accepting. Is that a source of, of great frustration for you as, as a baseball fan, as a queer person that, that hasn't happened yet in MLB still in 2021?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a complicated history, obviously. So you have Glenn Burke, mm-hmm. and baseball did not treat Glenn Burke well. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's traded from the Dodgers for being gay. He's run out of Oakland for being gay. You know, he ends up obviously living in poverty um, and then eventually dying of, of HIV complications. And the, the athletics, you know, sort of like eventually ponied up a little bit of money to make sure he could eat. But, you know, really, he was treated very, very, very unkindly by mm-hmm. by the game and so i think it is it's a little bit different um when you mentioned like an active nhl player that was an nhl like prospect um yes, he's too. a high level prospect but like mm-hmm. there's never been an a former ml or a former nhl player as far as i know to who has come out you know there have been players who've played sort of in the ahl um in various sort of like european teams and stuff like that or who have been like in this case a, an active prospect so i think it's it's not totally different i think that that mlb really has that history of of burke and sort of how he was he was treated just i mean like that's something for which baseball needs to to do Mm -hmm. more have more accountability about right Mm -hmm. um that they'll celebrate the invention of the high five but not necessarily say like we did this because he was gay and we did this probably because he was, you know, because he was both black and gay mm-hmm. and we treated him in just ways that, that future players that has to inform sort of their, their thinking about all of this. Um, and that's not super speculative because I think um, Billy Dean mentions that in his memoir as well. Um, Cause he, he played under Lasorda, And so, you know, I think that that is sort of like a known history um, and Bean obviously gets into into a lot of the the issues when he was playing as well. So I think that there's it's because there have been gay players and there have been players who have come out after the fact. It is just a little bit different than like the NHL or, um, you know, I feel like I, the NFL is a little bit different, you know, and, and basketball is a little bit different because you had players who were toward the end of their career free agents who've come out. And I think with baseball, that's probably how it's gonna end up. Um, that we're gonna get, you know, sort of a, hey, remember some guy. And he's right. just like, Yeah, I, you know, I I have a husband. No no one can recognize me when I'm not wearing my 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 hat. So it does not matter. <laughs> um, like, oh, are you a middle ending reliever? You are the most anonymous person in the in the world. But at the same time, I think that that's that's how it's gonna function. There was a, a minor leaguer who was actually retiring. Um, who came out as bi like a couple yes. of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and you know, I know that obviously on the on the stoppers you all had like uh, a gay pitcher, mm-hmm. and then uh, there have been a like a handful of other folks as well. But yeah. I I think that's where we're going to end up. You know, MLB talks out of both sides of its mouth about these things. You know, I think that that there's a lot of like you know, the Nationals have night out. There's a lot of like pride events or I think that the Yankees do like a Stonewall commemoration and stuff like that. But there's also Chick-fil-A on the poles,
0: mm-hmm.
2: And so like they're, they're happy to take queer people's money on Pride night, but they're also happy to take money from a company that is explicitly homophobic right. on the other side of it. And I think that, that any player has to see those sort of contradictions and have that shape sort of like how much they want to tell the world and how much the world really like deserves to know.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wondered because there hasn't been a a real life equivalent of your story that we know about, of course, I wondered whether you had any hesitation about depicting teammates who were in a relationship with each other just because- You know, I, I guess that one of the maybe the the homophobic fears uh, about having a, a player come out is, you know, I would be uncomfortable sharing a, a locker room or, you know, showering near this person who, you know, is a, attracted to, to people of my sex or something. It's almost like the sort of sexist attitude about women reporters being allowed in the clubhouse when when that first became a thing, you know, oh, this is where I change. This is my personal space and to allow someone of, of the opposite sex into this. Inner sanctum that would be uncomfortable for for both of us, and there would be inevitable attraction, etc. And this is something that I think we thought about pitch. I don't know whether you watch pitch, mm-hmm. but uh, but Meg and I, I, I think we were both kind of rooting a- against there being a romance between the pitcher protagonist and. Catcher co-character just because I guess partly just because you know it, it seems kind of a nice exception to the cliche of of characters kind of constantly having a will they or won't they in in TV but also because you know Jenny Baker the the main character of that series she has a, a no dating player's policy you know she's I guess worried about how it would look and and so it it seemed like you know are they going to go there and ultimately they went there and so I wonder whether you had any hesitation about going there as opposed to having players, you know, be in a relationship with someone who is not in baseball, let's say, which would still be something that, you know, players have have not been comfortable coming out about yet. So, I just wonder whether there were any extra considerations or or sensitivity just because of that setup.
2: Yeah, and I want to say I really liked Pitch. Um, the episode where she ends up in, at that party in like the swimming pool is uh, just like a great episode of television for how mm-hmm. it's structured. I think that it suffered a little bit from trying to like explain non-baseball, <laughs> baseball <laughs> things to a non-baseball audience, and then also like of Serious baseball folks, and it was just hitting its stride when it got canceled. Yeah. So you know, if anybody out there is listening, I would love another season where it's I would like, too. you yeah. know, just just a little bit more. I also, you know, I, I think that some of the the, the stuff about like w- women playing, and, well, and I don't even say women, like non cis men playing, um, often really is you know the first, the only, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, versus like just focusing on non cis men playing baseball, like mm-hmm. as a as a community and a history. And, you know, maybe it's because I'm sitting under, like, a Racine Bell's poster and an Estes Cubana's poster. But, like, that's sort of where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Going back to your your actual question, though. So I think at one point you mentioned, like you just kind of want to be like, Zach, get it together.
0: <laughs>
2: it's intentional. Um, mm-hmm. he, you know, I, I was like, man would rather sign with bottom scraping Miami baseball teams than go to therapy. Um, <laughs> he eventually does go to therapy. Yes. You know, I think that, that for me, like, some of this is that that it's bad decisions, right? Like, that there are ethical considerations of, you know, two people who are not only on the same team, but they're really like, kind of competing for playing time with one another like that's not a, a situation that is going to be tenable in the long term without frankly much better communication skills than he possesses at the time or you know sort of much better and i won't put it all on him like much better communication skills than than aohenio possesses at the time um because he's under a set of pressures that is related to but slightly different from zach as somebody who's a like a late in life or, or late in his career rookie
0: because
2: mm-hmm. he's he and Zach are about the same age, but Zach has like four or five years more service time. And so, you know, it's not supposed to be tenable and it's not supposed to be a good idea. And so I wanted to kind of show that because of the, the sort of considerations of them competing against one another, of the team taking an affront to Zach arguing for a higher and receiving a higher salary in arbitration and therefore cutting his playing time. Mm-hmm. in sort of as a retaliatory measure and sort of him having that versus Aohenio being like, I'm a 28 year old rookie. Like I just need to do this because mm-hmm. if I don't do this, like I'm pretty much done. And so that that's sort of the balance. In terms of this sort of teammates thing, I, you know, I tried to kind of be like, look, you know, there's a certain point where if you're if you're around people who use their bodies to make a living, bodies become furniture to a certain extent. Right, I think I at one point I said like, you know, it's about as erotic as an elbow. It's just sort of like the fact of, you know, you can sort of partition in your mind of this is when I'm supposed to have attraction to other people versus like I'm just around the fact that people that I'm in an environment where people are using their bodies to make money. And I tried to kind of have that as a balance because that balance exists in, you know, if you have people who are in the same dance troupe, if you have people who are Strippers, if you have people who are doing a variety of jobs in which and in which they make their money using bodies, bodies just become sort of de-eroticized because of of just they're there. Mm -hmm. And I tried to make that particularly clear, but I I don't think like I don't think it's a good idea for teammates to be involved because I think coworkers shouldn't be involved with one (laughs) another when they are sort of competing for the same slot. And I have written other stories in which players on the same team are involved and do try to get into the, the ethics of it, right? Uh-huh. Like if you have somebody who is, you know, has a $200 million contract and you have somebody who's a marginal player, they're power this power dynamic is not going to be equal on the team you know there's there's a lot of sort of stuff that you can you can get into that's interesting but the sort of fundamental question of like can you have two people who are attracted to each other surrounded by other people who are not (laughs) regardless of if they're in the same changing room I kind of think is sort of a a question that that I think should necessarily get set to the side because again like at at a certain point it's it's just sort of like yeah you know, that's what I do for a living.
1: Yeah, right. So I have to ask, which is harder to write, a sex scene or a baseball scene? (laughs) Because either way, you're doing a a type of play-by-play, right? But um, these are both activities where uh, sometimes it's more fun to observe or to participate in than to read about. (laughs) Not always (laughs) the case, but but often the case. And as you know, there's not a, a ton of sort of you know, standard play-by-play, play, he threw the ball, he hit the ball kind of action in the book. But there's inevitably a bit of that. And I know from personal experience, it, it can be hard to write that in a compelling way. So <laughs> what are the the tricks of the trade, I suppose, and, and which did you find more challenging? Because uh, I imagine, you know, you could describe a, a sex scene in a very clinical kind of way and it probably wouldn't be very fun or very titillating for for anyone so there must be a unique skill set associated with with both of these descriptions
2: yeah um i've i've actually considered that a lot um i'm gonna say baseball is actually <laughs> harder to write because there's a batting order and you're like oh <laughs> can they have them batting no i mentioned like two innings ago would they actually be up sort of like what's <laughs> happening you know both baseball and sex scenes function as essentially like the way an action scene or a fight scene would in an action movie, right? It -hmm. has to advance the plot. It has to show characterization. um, It has to sort of unveil stuff about characters or you're right. It's just, you know, sort of like Little mannequins doing whatever the author wants, which is not mm-hmm. a super interesting thing to read. You know, you mentioned kind of how sex scenes function in romance; they function very differently than in literary fiction. So there's often like these screenshots of terrible sex scenes in literary fiction that kind of get <laughs> right, passed around. Right. Uh, I think Jonathan Franzen is is <laughs> <in> particular <laughs> noted for this. And you know, I'm I'm not saying like he writes good sex scenes because he doesn't, but he writes them. To be disgusting and alienating and disembodied and distancing, mm-hmm. and I think he's very effective at that. I don't want to do any of those things in either a sex scene or a baseball scene, right? You want to be sort of like in the stadium dirt with players. You want to be able to sort of like experience a game, but also have it you know drive the plot, move you know uh, show something about characterization. Um, and I think that's the same thing for a sex scene that you want to have it be in a romance novel, like an embodied experience versus like a distancing experience. It's supposed to show connection between people versus versus disconnection.
1: Mm-hmm. But
2: that said, there's just this is going to sound hard. There's fewer moving parts than baseball. <laughs> <laughs> like and I probably am a little bit more attentive than other folks. But like, you know, with with baseball scenes, you're just kind of like oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta make sure the batting order is correct. I gotta see, like, I don't know if there's, would this person be like, ha- have like a shift against them? You know, what kind of player are they? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's some thought into it. Um, the, the baseball scene I'm probably the most fond of in the book is actually just like maybe even the simplest, but talks a lot about sort of like tunneling and commit point as yep. a little, being a little bit metaphorical for where he is, where <laughs> Zach is emotionally. But in order to do that, you have to be able to, like, get him into the batter's box and, you know, have a pitcher who's throwing stuff against him and, you know, sort of talk about what that is in order to kind of arrive at that moment. Mm. But, uh, you know, in terms of, like, I don't know, actual choreography, I joke that I should get ball joint dolls. <laughs> <laughs> um, just so, like, you don't end up with people with, like, three arms.
0: <laughs> right. or you
1: know uh
2: improbably like well that's great but they'd probably break something you're like oh yeah that's, that's the point
1: <laughs> and one other process question is about picking a cover because i have found that very difficult with my books it's not something where the author always has input or final say in what the cover looks like with a romance novel, I, I think there are certain conventions and expectations. And I wondered, <laughs> is there just a... Do you mean like,
2: abs? There, there be abs.
1: <laughs> yes, although uh, in the case of Unwritten Rules, I guess the abs are, are obscured by the, the title. But that's uh, kind of what I wanted to ask about. Because, I mean, is there just a giant database of stock photos of baseball players in various states of undress? And if so, did you... <laughs> browse them looking for the perfect person who could stand for your characters. You've had to do this multiple times, I guess, because you have also written a a novella and and co-written another book and and we can plug those at the end. But uh, how does one pick a cover for a baseball romance novel specifically?
2: Yeah um this is actually you you've kind of stumbled a little bit into like a huge controversy in romance so I will try right. to to boil that down into into some specifics for people who are not uh in kind of in uh Landia Twitter um, okay. in particular, because um, this is a big a big fight going on right now in terms of of what covers should look like. So unwritten rules is published through Karina Press, which is a digital first uh, imprint of Harlequin. Um, people tend to be pretty familiar with Harlequin, you know. That's sort of the classic. Like you're you're really thinking of the the paperbacks with um, what's called clinch covers. You know, the couple embracing. Um, or you have sort of like an inset uh, picture of them, and then you open it, and there's kind of a full painting. And yes, Fabio is involved in a lot of them, but there's also a lot of other, other other cover models. And so that's sort of what people, I think, envision a little bit with Harlequin and with with romance covers. Karina is a little bit, uh, I would say, like the the almost experimental wing of of Harlequin. Um, so publishes stuff that's. Queer publishes stuff that's like just for a very like hyper specific audience, and it, that's terrific. Like that's not that's not a knock on it because like you know a queer Jewish baseball book is a very hyper specific audience, <laughs> but that's sort of going to inform how the the cover gets made because I did not make the cover. A cover artist named John John Kixie did. Mm-hmm. There are codes and conventions in romance novels for the covers. If you have somebody either. With abs, or taking off their shirt in the case of of unwritten rules, that means that the book is probably going to contain explicit Uh sex. So part of that is, you know, why are there so many abs? It's a signal to the reader of like, what will be contained therein. It was important to me that I only had one person on the cover because it's a single point of view book. So two people can often really imply that it is going to be a dual point of view book. Uh The book is kind of like the cover is on a ball field that's a little bit like, um, dark and atmospheric. Um, and I really want, kind of wanted to have that as sort of the tone of the book is, a, is a little bit more moody, melancholy than I think you, you, you sometimes get in, in sports romance, which can be, you know, rom-commy, but this is definitely not a, not a rom-com. I'm funny, I think as a person and sometimes as a writer, but, um, this is not like Going to be sort of like the fictional equivalent of you know those kind of classic Meg Ryan movies, um. And so you want to have a cover that can that can very quickly and in a thumbnail on Amazon communicate all of those things. And right. I think Karina did like a really great job at that. You asked about is there a giant database of baseball players taking <laughs> taking their shirts off? There is not, but I'm just going to tell you, minor leaguers, if you are looking for some cash, being in stock photos will pay very well. <laughs> because a lot of times you're looking for baseball stuff because there's, there's like iStock and deposit photos and things like that where you're looking for for kind of stock photos. And they're using like, oh, like they'll have on um, pants that demand high socks pulled all the way down. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, what are we doing? <laughs> um, or they'll have a, a bat, but it's like a bat that's not like not in proportion to like the person who's holding its body. I'm like, is that a kid's baseball bat? Like, what are we doing? Or like, they're holding their glove wrong. Like, I mean, we're talking very fundamentally simple things. So there is actually a demand for better pictures because often, particularly if you're writing, if you're writing sports stuff, um, the the kind of current stock imagery is not necessarily accurate to the sport. Uh In terms of the communication that it is a sports romance, it's obviously on a ball field, there's stitching on you know, baseball stitching on the front cover. You know, that's sort of the the visual communication that it is sports. Um, you'll often see stock photos of people with towels around their necks, like like holding a towel, like as if they just got out of a shower with a Uh towel around their neck. And that communicates sports romance, believe it or not.
1: I see. Meg and I often joke about starting a consulting service where we would offer input into various baseball projects and and check them for <laughs> accuracy. So I guess we should add stock photos for romance novel covers to our list of services perhaps. But I wondered, I mean, because the cover signals what sort of story this is and also the description and, and so forth to some extent, I assume you don't have a lot of walk-ins who are just kind of stumbling onto the book thinking that this is going to just be, you know, your standard baseball fiction, and then are sort of surprised by the erotic elements, the romance elements. I, I would assume that most people know what they are signing up for and, and are doing so with pleasure. But I remember when I was at Baseball Prospectus, and this was 10 years ago at this point, Emma Spann wrote an article about baseball slash fiction, and it caused quite a response among the subscribers at the time. And, and again, And this was 10 years ago and maybe attitudes have shifted, but there were people who loved the article. There was also a ton of blowback and people who were upset about the article. And and yes, there is a a ton of baseball slash fiction out there, not just players. There's Billy Bean slash Theo Epstein (laughs) stories out there if you want to find them. But I think people were uncomfortable with this i mean part of it was just oh it's baseball prospectus and you expect some statistical deep dive and then here's an article about slash fiction this is not what i subscribed for etc but also i think there was just you know sort of this uh this is uncomfortable this is icky this is baseball players having sex i i don't want to think about this you know this (laughs) makes me uncomfortable for reasons i don't want to fully interrogate etc but I assume there has not been much reaction like that to unwritten rules, or I don't know what your dad thought of it ultimately. But, he likes uh,
2: the baseball, and that's what we're going to talk about.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah, your uh, your your anticipation of your dad's reaction to reading the book, probably not so dissimilar from Zach's anticipation of of his family finding out about his relationship. But yeah, I mean, I imagine, you know, there is – maybe not as as much crossover as as one would hope between people who are reading regular baseball fiction and, and reading this sort of story even though i think they would certainly enjoy it and and would highly recommend it to anyone
2: you know i think that that's a that's a complicated question in terms of the the kind of ecosystem of readers right mm-hmm. so i think that sort of the the idea of like who reads baseball fiction right that's still going to be you know really thinking about like Field of Dreams. I don't know. The Chosen. I think counts as Jewish baseball fiction. Yeah, you know, as you said, yeah. you point to anything that contains baseball. That's a baseball <laughs> book. You know, I that you know the natural that that kind of thing. And then people who are romance readers. You know, I think that with like dude taking off his shirt, it's kind of unambiguous what you're gonna get. Maybe mm-hmm. the heat heat level was surprising to a few folks. I had a a number of friends who basically, you know, were not romance readers who were like, "Hey, this is like, I really liked this." Um, and I was like, "Yeah, it's pretty, it's a little spicy." And they're like, "Yeah, that's fine, whatever." You know, like it's mm-hmm. I, I knew what I was signing up for essentially. Yeah. And so you, I think you know, I did try to get some crossover that way. I think the the greater surprise was from people who are readers of sports romance who are not necessarily into the sports. Uh-huh. Who were like, oh, this is very sportsy. And I was like, yeah, yes. you know, I just want to be very clear. Like, it's sportsy. <laughs> I also think baseball people like more baseball in their baseball fiction than necessarily shows up in like even a hockey nonfiction mm. that I've read. That there's a difference in terms of like the sort of romanticism of the game, the sort of way it's portrayed. The sort of you'll get more baseball in a baseball movie than you will hockey in a hockey movie, Mm -hmm. which is weird because hockey is very visually interesting.
1: (laughs) Yes, I I agree. I actually I often think if I were going to really invest in any other sport, it would be hockey. I love hockey. Hockey is so cool (laughs) that it makes me question why I spend all this time paying attention to baseball when I could be watching hockey instead. But (laughs) you have other work on the way. You have a novella called One True Outcome coming next March and <laughs> you have uh, also co-written a story I believe that is available now called Dirty Slide you want to give us a, a quick pitch story summary for those or any other upcoming work
2: sure so yeah as as you said I co-wrote a uh, novella called Dirty Slide with an author named Lauren Blakely who herself wrote a trilogy of um baseball baseball romance MM baseball romance um, that came out this summer called the the men of summer series that I would encourage people to check out if they're, if they're at all interested in that. She also had some fun with alternative team names is what I'm going to say. <laughs> so we co-wrote a novella um, about a, you know, a player who spikes another player um, during a world series game. And when uh, Max Fried got his ankle trod upon, I was like, Oh my God, no. <laughs> I was like, life in the tits art we have that and then uh one true outcome is uh set in the same universe as unwritten rules and is going to be out um march 2022 um that involves so at one point there's a, a sort of trade that occurs in unwritten rules so it is about the player who uh an unwritten rules character is traded for um mm-hmm. sort of their their story and kind of gets into um there's always there's always a, a there's always a catcher in, in my, my story. So one of them is a catcher. <laughs> and so is MM based romance, um, has a lot of the same, I would say similar themes to Unwritten Rules, but is obviously um, a set of different stories. So that that's gonna be out in March. Um, in terms of other work, the last thing I'll mention, uh, I did a um, novella, novelette novella for a uh, holiday romance anthology called Love All Year which is a seven holiday romances, none of which are centered around like Christian or white ethno sort of ethno majoritarian cultural holidays. Um, So basically like you could, uh, there's a, You know, I wrote a Tuba Shvat story, and I'll explain what that is in a second. (laughs) But there's also, like, they've had Juneteenth stories, they've had um, uh, Kwanzaa stories, they've had stories set around other Jewish holidays. So the the novel that I wrote for that is called The Koufax Curse, and is about two baseball players who who, uh, reunite at spring training, one of whom has newly signed to the other one's team. Um, mm-hmm. They're both Jewish and one pitched on Yom Kippur and the other did not. And mm-hmm. uh, they are having a lot of sort of antagonism over that. And they reunite uh, at spring training and during a holiday that's uh, called Tu B'Shvat, which is essentially Jewish Arbor Day is the best way to put it, but has some some religious components. And so it's what happens when they, when they come back together um, and the team is like, go, go work yourselves out mm-hmm. and sort of how they, they balance that and balance some of this stuff about, you know, uh, pressures on Jewish players in particular to play um, on holidays and at specific times, which I think still exists to a certain extent. So that is, that is also out if people want like a little, a little taste of, of my writing without necessarily um, digging into a uh, a whole book, <laughs> but yes. yeah. So I, I would say if folks are are interested in all in romance novels, definitely you know, and and baseball, definitely check out the books. Um, mm-hmm. if you're if people are interested in romance in general, um, the advice I kind of always have is think about what you like to read in fiction, and there's a romance equivalent. Mm-hmm. So like, I love 20s pulp mysteries. There are 20s pulp mystery romances. Uh huh. So. You know, I would say if people are are listening and going, hey, this this sounds kind of cool. Just think about like kind of what you want to read and then and then find the romance equivalent. And that's always a good starting point.
1: So where can people find Unwritten Rules and your other romance writing or non-romance writing if you want to plug that or yourself on social media, et cetera? And I know the big ballot that came out on Monday that everyone (laughs) was talking about, the Reed's Rainbow Awards nominees (laughs) in the adult romance category. Unwritten rules is nominated, so you can go vote for it now. But anything you wanna plug or direct people to have at it.
2: Sure. So I am at Katie Casey. So at KD, the letters, Casey, uh, writes at Twitter, Instagram, Someone on Facebook, and then uh, my website is katiecaseyrights.com. If you subscribe to my newsletter, I will send you a free 8,000 word short story about, you guessed it, baseball players and they kiss. So, uh, if again, people want a little taste of of my writing for free, I would say definitely check that out. As you said, that was the ballot that everyone was talking about on Monday, right? Like, that is, it's a controversial ballot. (laughs) I know there's going to be a lot of like wailing and gnashing of teeth about it. In seriousness, this is a, a blog. Called Reads Rainbow, who do incredible work on talking about queer fiction generally, so not just romance novels. They talk about sort of queer fiction generally, um, and they they do reviews and sort of thematic recommendations and things like that. And they're they're wonderful folks. Um, and they are doing a an awards ballot for the year, um, and I was honored to be named among some really 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 incredible authors for that. And I would say. Again, if people are interested in reading romance, just start with their ballot and just read read your way down because it would be a great way to do it. But yeah, if uh, people want to come say hi on Twitter, you know, come come hang out, talk a little romance, talk a little baseball. I'm at uh, Katie Casey Wrights.
1: All right. Well, again, I really enjoyed the book. I really recommend it to anyone listening here. And at the very least, like you've given me another argument in the case against robo-umps, right? Because uh, you're suppressing (laughs) romance. If you don't have to teach other catchers framing and and bring them together, then uh, who knows what kind of (laughs) romance you you might uh, get in the way of. So there's another argument that I did not anticipate. But again, a whole novel that is sort of centered on catchers and, and Framing. I mean, it feels like it was written for me. And uh, if you want to write Aww. a sequel at some point, I will be in. So maybe I'm biased because of the epigraph, but again, I'm uh, flattered that you landed on that quote. And congrats again on the book. And it's been a pleasure talking to you.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's it's really I appreciate the the kind words about the book. I would say, you know, uh for Robo Umps, I did a, some analysis as part of book research that found <laughs> that the average catcher contributes negative runs to their team. So. <laughs> But they maybe contribute, you know, a nice love story. So it really balances.
1: (laughs) All right. Let's take a quick break now. And I'll be right back with Gerald Schiffman of Baseball Prospectus to discuss shadows on the field. I am joined now by the world's foremost and possibly only researcher about the effects of shadows on a baseball field, and I have been waiting. For this piece by my guest Gerald Schiffman, for years now. It is a follow up to his first examination of the subject. And really, it's like I look forward to the sixth book of A Song of Ice and Fire and the third book of the King Killer Chronicle and Gerald Schiffman's follow up to his research about shadows on the field at Baseball Prospectus. So, Gerald, hello, welcome back. I guess talking about the effect of shadows on the field in postseason play in particular is not super timely in late November. But it's a baseball podcast, so nothing we say in late November is all that timely. Welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me on. That's very uh, high expectations. I (laughs) hope the piece meets that.
1: (laughs) It met my expectations, and I'm not sure that anyone else had the same expectations (laughs) that I did. (laughs) So I think you're good. But... I have been fascinated by this subject for a while because it's just a constant refrain throughout all of October, and not only October, but especially so, where almost every single game, I mean, depends on the start time, of course, but you just constantly hear, "Oh, the shadows are creeping across the mound, and now they're between the mound and home plate, and you have former players who are now broadcasters who are talking about the effect of this, and... No one has ever really studied it in a rigorous way, to my knowledge, other than you. And I guess the reason for that is that it's pretty difficult to study. So tell us a little bit about some of the challenges associated with actually getting an answer to this question. And I guess how you went about it the first time two years ago when you published your your first examination back in 2019. And that time didn't find anything that really supported the idea that the shadows play an important role.
3: So the first main issue you have to deal with is that you don't know what the batter actually sees from from pitch to pitch. Yeah, I mean that applies to any analysis. Like you just you just don't have that data, so you have to find some proxy that basically acts as a go-between for when the shadows may be an issue.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And last time I used a combination of the timestamp from PitchFX and Statcast and also attempted to use the sun's position, which you can calculate with like the time and the latitude and longitude to the ballpark. Like you said, I didn't really find any definitive conclusions, you know, supporting these huge effects that we hear about on Mm -hmm. TV. And that was when looking for differences in strikeouts and walks. Mm -hmm. This time I broke things down to the pitch level, tried to find whether in the late afternoon whiffs and chases escalate to a significant degree, and found that they seem to for high spin pitches, which is pretty interesting.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the first time you looked into this I was relieved that someone finally had because we had gotten some questions about it and no one had ever really come up with a satisfying answer and I was thinking of maybe we could do some kind of effectively wild crowdsourced inquiry where we could get everyone to record exactly when the shadows were creeping across the field and then we could use that but didn't end up doing that and it would have been difficult to do and you found a way to do it but first came up with nothing and it wasn't (laughs) like you said, oh, this This is not true. There's nothing to it. You just said, well, based on what I have investigated here, there doesn't seem to be anything that supports the idea, but doesn't necessarily disprove it either. So why did something show up this time and not that time?
3: I think, well, a few reasons. One, using a different data set. Another difference from this piece to as compared to the last piece is last time I only looked at regular season data from 2019. This time I looked only at postseason data from like an eleven-year period, so maybe it helps that the sun is at a more consistent position in October across all stadiums, as opposed to throughout a whole season when the sun—it's in June—it's higher in the sky than it is in October, at least as a as a maximum. Mm. Uh, so that that could be one difference. And I think breaking things down to the pitch level when you're looking at timestamp data is probably much more much more precise way to do it. Mm -hmm. So I think those are probably the biggest differentiators.
1: Yeah, this sort of reminds me of earlier studies that were done about different subjects where initially there wouldn't really be anything to confirm the idea, or maybe even the idea was refuted. And then later you get different data and better and more granular data, and then you're able to discover some signal there. Like Keith Wilner, when he did his first studies on catcher framing for baseball prospectus, pre-pitch FX, pre-pitch data... He didn't find anything And for a while there it seemed like Oh what are all these ex-catchers talking about This is not a thing But of course players and teams and coaches Had known about framing And talked about framing for decades I mean going back to early Last century if not before then And so once we got better data And there were better studies that were done They found oh yeah this matters Not only does it exist but it matters If anything more than people thought it mattered So it's sort of the same trajectory here, I suppose, with the shadows where you had this chorus of ex-players who were saying, yeah, this affected me when I was playing, and it turns out they kind of know what they were talking about, probably. So, what did you find specifically about which pitches are affected and how they're affected?
3: So, what I found is that breaking balls and cutters, which is like a higher spin type fastball, they post a statistically significant increase in whiffs from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. So for, for breaking balls overall, the difference is like 4.4 4 percentage points, I think. Mm-hmm. And there are some differences too when you break it down between curves and sliders. Curves actually post a higher differential, but sliders seem to post a more consistently positive differential. Whereas like sinkers, which are low spin pitches, they seem to underperform in the shadows. So
1: mm-hmm. it all
3: seems to align with like there's some specific quotes in there I have from like Mike Scotia and uh, Adam Roche. The idea that like it's this spin that they really struggle with when they're staring through both sunlight and shade.
1: Yeah, you just constantly hear about this If you watch postseason baseball and, and Jeff Sullivan tweeted last month If a baseball announcer sees a shadow on the field It means six more weeks of talking about it And I guess I sympathize Because baseball broadcasts are long And there's only so much Input you can add And so if this is something that you can speak to From experience and it's actually affecting The game at that moment, then you probably should Point it out But it was something that was always unsatisfying To me or, or it made me question well how much does it matter does it really matter is this just a, an old player's tale or is there some substance to it so would you say that based on the effects that you found you would recommend that pitchers pitch any differently or hitters hit any differently i mean should it or does it do you know change pitch selection in any significant way where if you're the pitching coach of postseason team that's starting a game at four o'clock you'd say hey load up on breaking balls earlier." <laughs>
3: I think the takeaway for pitchers is that like higher spin pitches are probably better. So that would mean more breaking balls, more cutters, especially if they're like particularly high spin versions of those pitches, that may be a good prescription for how to pitch when shadows are present. Mm-hmm. For hitters, I mean, it's hard to say because all they can do is react. I mean, would you want to take more of a gamble and just lay off a slider even though you don't really know exactly where it's going? Mm-hmm. And that that's a, that's a pretty... Difficult choice to make. I don't know, but you could.
1: Yeah. You found an effect for whiff rates, but not so much for chase rates, right? Do you have any theory about why the shadows might make you swing through pitches more often, but might not make you more likely to swing at pitches that you should not be swinging at more often?
3: I did wonder if my definition of a chase had something to do with it. So I used BP's uh, called strike probability. Uh-huh. And basically looked at any pitch that was less than 50% no CS rate. So basically it was more likely to be a ball than a strike. But like one could choose another threshold. What if you looked at only pitches that were very likely to be balls that had a CS rate of under 25%? Mm-hmm. Maybe it changes at that point.
1: Mm-hmm. So based on your findings, do you think announcers talk about this an appropriate amount or still too much or not enough? Like, I'm trying to figure out like, If this is a significant enough factor that if you were trying to come up with some postseason secret sauce, what helps you win in the playoffs, which has always been a difficult endeavor. If you have some high spin staff throws a lot of breaking balls and also, I don't know, maybe it's beneficial to be a team that doesn't get put in prime time so that you can play in the shadows more often if you have that kind of pitching staff but like does this matter enough that it should be like oh an occasional mention maybe or is it like no every time there's shadows and it might come into play then you should probably you're doing your duty as a broadcaster if you mention it because it's somewhat important.
3: That's kind of what I tried to touch upon in the conclusion like on one hand it's it's kind of a big deal to find real effects like there is some element of this piece that's validating the claims and when people hear it they don't have to just say oh they're they're just chatting and uh you know there's no proof of this i i there's i i think it's fair to say there's some proof now Mm -hmm. but at the same time i don't know if it's proof for some of the more aggressive claims about the shadows Mm -hmm. like sometimes you hear and this could be hyperbole like the hitters like literally can't see and it's very dangerous out there i mean that that's a that's a pretty big step above the the, uh, the data I found here, you know, if hitters literally couldn't see or something close to that that isn't so, so much hyperbole, you would see way bigger effects than this. So I, I think, you know, definitely fair to say that uh, it's worth discussion, but I do think it's also fair to say it could be, you know, measured in a sense and not just, you know, used as an excuse for, for everything.
1: Yeah, so it matters to an extent. I guess it's unlike catcher framing in that it's not that this turned out to matter even more than anyone suspected. You have found some significance here, but not enough to make a bad hitter into a good hitter. It's not like Jose Molina is actually good, you guys. (laughs) No one knew it. He can't hit, but he's so good at framing that he's actually great. Like, In magnitude, what you found here are are fairly small effects, like it might make a a good hitter a little less good, but it's not going to be a giant factor. But you never know in postseason baseball, every pitch matters, and some small effect on any particular pitch could make the difference. So shadows certainly could have an effect, even if we'll never know, I suppose, whether they made the difference on any particular pitch or play.
3: Yeah, and it's possible that breaking the data down a little differently, and this would be a, a, a version 3 possibility. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> In another two years. <laughs> like, look at the data a little differently as far as time frames, not, like, restrict itself to only these hourly bins. That could, could change, like, the, the magnitude of the effects. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's 4.4 points, for instance, for breaking balls across the entirety of 4 to 5 p.m you, you got to figure there's some variation at different like within that that time frame so mm. that's that's like opportunity for for further research yeah,
1: because I guess there's the question of like how long is that sliver of time where the shadows are in exactly the right place to disrupt a hit, or like right. it's a matter of minutes potentially. Because uh, if the shadows are covering the entire distance between the mound and home plate, maybe it doesn't make a difference. And if uh, they're not covering any part of that, then nothing. But it's just that in between time, and that's not a lot of real estate. So you know, how much time does it take for the shadow to cross sixty feet, six inches? I guess is the question, and you know, then you have inning breaks and pitching changes and all these things in there. So the actual amount of game action that is covered by that in between shadow time might not be that great. Maybe,
3: maybe. Like for instance, I had um, the piece was kind of framed around the one real shadows game we had this year in the playoffs, the uh, uh-huh. NLCS game three, and there really was about I would say one inning, and it was a long inning. But it was really one inning when the shadows were clearly, you know, doing what, what uh, Frank Hor warned of, which was um, part of the path between the mound and the plate was in shadow and part was in sun mm-hmm. and um, really did not last too long. And it, I'm sure it depends on the the park that the game is being played. In, and it would depend on the time of year for sure. I mean, playoff. if you're restricting your look to playoffs, that's not an issue.
1: Mm-hmm. But if
3: you're trying to broaden it, then it
1: is. Are you more satisfied with your results this time or the first time? I guess you enjoy a good debunking better than confirming something because uh, both can be fun and, and broadcasters just say so many things about baseball that they give writers a lot of material to work with and I know your colleague Rob Baines at Baseball Prospectus does a lot of articles that are inspired by something a broadcaster said and then you check it out and generally I take a trust but verify approach with broadcaster ex-player comments and often obviously they know what they're talking about and we can learn a lot from them and sometimes they might be exaggerating or they might be misremembering some details I mean often when you go back like Rob Nyer often does and you look at the specific circumstances of a story that a player remembers from some point in their career you'll find actually there never was a game where this guy pitched and it took place in that park and so maybe they're kind of conflating multiple games or maybe they're dressing something up because it makes a better story which can be okay in some cases but would you rather debunk this and be able to say every time a broadcaster brings this up no this is nonsense they don't know what they're talking about or would you rather say no there's actually something to this and it's just that now we have some evidence for the fact
3: well it's important that i say objective but (laughs) i was uh i was prepared based on the first piece to for this to be a debunking yeah i was actually surprised to find significant effects Mm -hmm. but i mean now that those are in hand i'm happy to have found them honestly
1: Yeah, I think it's nice when the ex-players and the the analysts who never played at that level can kind of come together and find the same effect and, and back up something that the other said. So. I enjoyed this and I guess now my wait will start again so this is uh, potentially <laughs> a trilogy of Shadows research so hopefully it will be out before the winds of winter but we will see so next time I, I guess uh, you will just dive even deeper and who knows what data will be available by then and bigger samples and all of that but next time we get to October or don't even have to wait until October and some broadcaster trust this out again Hope. Way they can cite you and your research And say, hey, Gerald Shipman at Baseball Prospectus Actually looked into this and backed it up a little bit But if not, at least we know That it is out there So I'd encourage everyone to go read this I will link to it on the show page as always And Check out Gerald's work in general. He does a lot of great research at Baseball Prospectus, not just about shadows. And you can find him at G. Schiffman on Twitter. Is there anything else that you are hoping to look into that is similarly resistant to studies and analysis? Because like sometimes it feels like we've asked every question or answered every question. And, of course, there's a lot that we don't know about baseball. but. There aren't as many things I guess that are tough to study now, even with Statcast and the level of information that we have. Like is there something on your wish list that is just as hard to research as the effect of shadows or even harder?
3: Uh you know, I do have like a list of topics that I like mm-hmm. accumulate and then get to in drips and drabs. So there yeah. is there is there are a few items in there. Mm-hmm. Offhand, I just don't know.
1: Okay. All right. So stay tuned. I know I will. Thank you, Jared, for this long-awaited article, long-awaited by me, and conversation as well.
3: Thanks for having me on, Ben.
1: Okay, that will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. As mentioned, Meg will be back tomorrow for one final pre-Thanksgiving episode on Stove League and the Hot Stove League. In the meantime, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Depending on your tier of support, you can get access to Patreon-exclusive monthly AMA episodes, which we will start publishing next week. And the Effectively Wild patron-only Discord group there are many other benefits that you can get so go check it out at the site again patreon.com slash effectively wild almost 400 members in the discord group now and the following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly or annual amount to help keep the podcast going and keep the podcast ad free while also getting themselves access to some of those extras room 215 jason lee kellen larson tom McKeting, and monty french thanks to all of you You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcastandfancrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod or discuss the show on Reddit. There's an Effectively Wild subreddit. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. And we will be back with one more episode this week very soon. Talk to you then.